We are uh, on the second week of our class on parenting. And again, I want to encourage you to uh, stick with me throughout this, whether you are a parent now or you don't see yourself as a parent or, um, you know, ever, ever in the future or you never have been one. I want you to stick with us because there is valuable um, lessons that you can learn for your own life, but also to help other parents within this church. It's not required that a person is a parent in order for them to be able to explain the truth of God to someone else, just as Jesus could obviously uh, explain truth in that way, even though he wasn't a physical, biological parent. Um, so the the main point is that we need to know the truth of God and be convinced of it, and uh, and then we can help other people. And obviously we do that with a spirit of mutual humility that both the teacher and the student, in this case the parent, um, is is willing to uh, to uh, to learn, and the teacher is willing to recognize that hey, I haven't been to, in your shoes exactly, but I can speak on the authority of the Word of God, and this is what I see it, you know ought to be happening in your life, or you know, or it could just be a, a means of encouragement. It doesn't have to be a a, a correction. Um, so. I mentioned last week, I just want to say this before we pray, that you know that, that the family, that the father-son relationship, the parent-child relationship is not the ultimate reality. That the family is only a picture of what is the ultimate reality, which is what? Okay, it's actually the relationship of God with His Son. Okay, that God, the Father, existed as Father with His Son eternally, and He will exist in that way. And I hope you recognize that families are only uh, temporary, that they don't last for all of eternity. They, you know, that, that in heaven we will not be married or given in marriage, Jesus says. So um, it's a temporary picture, and, and perhaps that didn't come out very clearly. So let me give you two examples um, to try to, to help you see what I'm talking about. Um, to help you see what's most important here. Okay, which would you rather get to know? Would you rather get to know a picture of me or me? <laughs> All right, that's that's not a good example. So that's why I have a second one. Um, All right, perhaps a better example would be a person in the military who is out in the field, away from his family, has a picture of his family uh, while he's away, and he just pours over that picture. Whenever he has free time, he's, he's staring at that, reflecting on it, and so on. And uh, after six months of being gone and really just um, developing a, a real knowledge for that picture, knowing exactly what's in that picture, he comes home and he sees his actual family. Now, what would we think of him is if while he's surrounded by his actual family, he pulls out of his picture, ignores all those people who are in the room, and stares at the picture. Right? I mean, we would think there's something wrong with him, and that's because the ultimate reality is not the picture. It only points to something that is greater, which is the person itself. And the same is true with regard to the families that we have on this earth. It's only a picture. It points to something greater and um, so while we can take great joy in our families, we must recognize that they only exist to help us, uh, help point us to the ultimate reality. 
All right, this this is not very easy to see. I hope you recognize. You know, sometimes we go through life and this is all we've known and and it's difficult to see. And that's why I brought up the example last week of the fish, you know, who swam by the younger fish and said, hey, how's the water? And the younger fish said, what water? You know, it's because some of the most obvious things are hardest to see because we're just so used to them. We haven't thought about them in a, in proper terms. And so that's why I want to... Uh, bring this idea of the family out and show you exactly what the purpose of it is, and we'll we'll uh, continue to show two other purposes for the family today. So let me pray and ask God's help as we do. Lord, we are uh, so grateful for the relationship that you have with your son, and as we'll see today, we're thankful for the relationship that you have with us, you being our father, we being called your your children. It is a great privilege and an honor to be a part of your family. We want to know that more so that we can um, we can love you more, so that we can exalt you more in our lives, so that we can respond with glad obedience to uh, your desires for us. May you help us today to see you more clearly and to respond rightly to what we have seen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is the one we looked at last week that family is a picture of God Himself. That is the Godhead. That God, the Father, the fundamental way we think about God. Remember Matthew 28? Baptize Him in the name of the head and you know the body. No, it's baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the, two, the fundamental way that we know God the Father is as a Father and the Son as the Son. So that's the first way we saw that the family is actually not the ultimate reality, but a picture of of the Godhead. And then secondly, and uh, thirdly, we'll see today, it's a picture of uh, of the gospel and a picture of the church. Okay, so first, the family presents for us a portrait of the gospel. A portrait of the gospel. Um, you know, if you think about the Old Testament, you recognize that Israel was called God's firstborn son, that the people of Israel were encouraged to sing uh, God's uh, fatherly compassion to, to sing about it. But Israel was not the ultimate child of God, we could say. I um, hope you recognize that that was just a picture as well. The ultimate, the ultimate picture uh, uh, that God wanted to display of Him being father over, obviously, His Son, but then secondly is, is really um, the church. Turn to Galatians chapter 4. We see this relationship um clearly i think galatians chapter 4 because this is one of the reasons that christ came one of the main reasons we could say that christ came was to make us a part of his family galatians 4 and would someone read verses 4 through 7 when the fullness of the time came god sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Alright, so notice all the ways in which we are described as sons and God as our Father. Okay, we see it first in verse 5 at the end that we might receive the adoption as sons. Verse 6, because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, 
Abba, Father. So we cry out, Father, then verse 7. No longer a slave, but a son. And then if a son, then an heir. Okay, so not just a lesser son. You know, we're, we're kind of like a, a subcategory of God's uh, children, but, but we are adopted into His real family. Um, the perfect son, Jesus Christ, was not ashamed in Hebrews 2.11 to call us His brothers. Um, and then Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, He tells them, this is how you ought to pray, our Father who art in heaven. So you need to think of God as your Father. Um, he reminded them not to be anxious about their food or their clothing in Matthew chapter 6 when He says, you know, don't be anxious about those things because you, your Heavenly Father is in heaven and He knows what you need and He cares for you. He also promised that, that the Father would not abandon us as orphans, as it says in John 14. Um, and then John gives us a good example in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, when he just overflows with wonder at God's grace to him, and he says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. Remember, uh, Charles Spurgeon had a sermon that was um, just on those last few words of 1 John 3, verse 1, because there was a disputed text that said that that wasn't really a part of it, and such we are. And so he made those four words the focus of his, his sermon, and such we are. And what a great truth that is, that we can put on the end of the verse, not just John the Apostle can be called a child of God, but such we are. We can be called children of God. And, and we should share that same wonder and amazement that John shares because uh, this re relationship that we have with God is not an accident or some small part of God's plan, but rather it's designed to teach us the special relationship that we have with God that comes through the Gospel, that He can be our true Father. J.I. Packer puts this strongly. He says this in his book, Knowing God. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. Is this not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life? It means, uh, or I should say, if this is not, the thing that controls his worship and prayers and outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. This is how we ought to think about God if we are a Christian, as our Father. Wayne Grudem, a uh, theologian, puts it this way, the relationship to God as our Father is the foundation of many other blessings of the Christian life and it becomes the primary way in which we relate to God. That, um, that this is a great blessing to be called God's Son. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12 because we have um, all these analogies in Scripture that point us back to our relationship with God as our Father. The author of Hebrew tells us not to forget the word of encouragement that 
that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take lightly the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when He rebukes you. And then would someone read, he continues to give more insight here into into God's tender, fatherly, loving care. And would someone read verses 5 through 11? The uh, King James Version in verse 8 uses a little bit stronger term than I'm uh, comfortable using. Use the term bastard there to refer to us. If we don't have this disciplining relationship from our Father, this is what we are. What's the what's the phrase in, in the other translations that is yeah illegitimate children okay so this is what we are if 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 God's not disciplining us if He's not chastening us if He's not bringing us into a place of correction if you feel comfortable in your Christian life and and everything's good and and you don't need any correction or reproof then then how can you call God your Father God should we're going to see this here in just a second, but one of the things about parenting is that you're never happy with where your children are. Okay, There's, still, there's a satisfied recognition of who they are. They are my child. They always will be my child, right? But there, there's always a sense in which they can move to a, another step of, of um, godliness. Okay, And that's the way God is with us. It's not that He's thinking about not calling us His children, you know, we're always His children. We recognize that. But that's why there's this constant disciplining that goes on because we need it. We need God to continue to move us to a, a place of conformity to His will. This is actually a good thing for us. Okay, so let's think about some applications or some implications of this. Number one, um, we can learn from God the Father how we ought to father our children. Okay, so or we could th- learn from God as our Father how we ought to parent our children. For instance, God fathers us as Christians by being lavish, generous. He's he's caring. He is loving. He's he provides and protects for us. And so, shouldn't we as parents do the same for our children? If that's how God treats us as His children, should not we do the same for our children? And let me just say that your child's view of God will often come from their view of their father. Um, So you could ask the question, well, do I have to be God to them? Do I have to... Well, no, you don't have to be God, but you need to reflect who God is to them. You need to be a good example to them of what God should look like. I mean, think about your childhood growing up and how your father was and think about some of the wrong ideas that you have about God because your father failed in those ways. Okay, maybe he was an exacting type of father and always bringing down retribution. Maybe you think of God that way and you can't think of God in a loving way because your father was never loving to you. Or maybe your dad was very passive and he he was you know more your buddy than than um and so you think of God as doesn't really matter holiness doesn't really matter to me and that's something that you still struggle with today well what i'm telling you is that you as a father need to model proper fatherhood for your children okay and i would say the application obviously goes to mothers as well you need to proper what it means you need to model what it means to be a proper parent a proper loving parent to your children Number two, um, 
constant conformity. This is what I was just mentioning, that God is insisting, He's moving us to a place of constant conformity. While He is happy with where we are in Christ, okay, He's not going to say, I'm, I can't, I got to break that bond because of the way you're acting. God will never do that because um, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and, and, you know, I give, my father has them in his hands and no one can pluck them out of my hands, on my father's hands, because he's greater than all. Right? John chapter 10. And so, it's not that, that our, our standing, our relationship with God is in jeopardy when we sin, but it is that God is constantly moving us to a place where we are uh, more, more godly. And, um, so God's purpose is, is like, um, it, it, like like Jesus, that we would imitate Him. Be imitators of God, Paul says in Ephesians 5. Therefore, as dearly beloved children in life, live a life of love, just as Christ loved us. Okay, and so in that way, we ought to do the same thing for our children. That we should, yes, be happy with where, who they are and their standing. Don't ever threaten your children, you know, like... You want you want me to put you up for adoption or something like that? That's you know that sounds kind of funny, but that's that's not a very good threat. Okay, in fact, I think that's an unbiblically sinful threat. Um, trying to manipulate their minds in order to to um, to get them to move to conformity. Recognize that conformity, genuine spiritual conformity, happens through the spirit, and uh, until until they are saved, they can't ultimately come to that that conformity or be moved in the the proper direction. But that doesn't mean we don't do that before uh, they get there. We'll talk about that more when we get into some of the practical aspects of of parenting. But what I want to say right now is just don't be satisfied with where your child is. You know, maybe they have made a profession of faith and now you're okay. I'm just gonna I'm I'm good with that. You know, they're a Christian. God and God's gonna take over from here. God will take over, but, you know, He does it through means. So, you are the means by which God's taking over their lives and changing them to a place of conformity. So, so be that means. Do, do what God wants you to do. Then number three, we need to be patient. Because God is patient. Psalm 103, one of my favorite psalms, says in verse 13, "...as a father has compassion on his children..." so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. And despite the setbacks, despite the obstinacy and the uh, the lack of conformity and the attitudes and whatever else, God is patient with us. He's compassionate with us. And He happily and generously gives His Spirit to those who ask. Listen to Luke 11.13. If you then, though you are evil... Give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So, so uh, be patient with your children. Okay, recognize they're not going to change overnight, just like you didn't change overnight. It took a lot of time. Look, took a lot of patience on the part of your parents. Took a lot of patience on the part of God. Okay, so that's the way you need to to treat your children. And, and so recognize that that is supposed to be a model of this great relationship that we have with God. That's the gospel. That we can be called the children of God through the blood of Jesus Christ like we have just sung 
about. And um, what a great way to, to train up our, our children, to be able to help them to understand that, that um, they can be a part of God's family, that Jesus can call them brothers and sisters. All right, any questions on the family as a portrait of the gospel? All right. The family also presents, thirdly, a portrait of the church. First, it presents a portrait of the Godhead, God the Father with God the Son. Secondly, a portrait of the gospel. And then thirdly, a portrait of the church. We could look up a lot of texts um, about the family, uh, the church being called the family of God, 1 Peter 4.17. The church is God's household, 1 Timothy 3.15. 1 Peter 4.17, 1 Timothy 3.15. How is it that we belong to this household? Well, it's because we are united with Christ. This is what we talked about um, a few weeks ago in the Sunday morning service, Ephesians 2, 1-10. Because of this union that we have with Christ, it means that we have been united together. We saw last week at the end of Ephesians 2, united together into one body with the Jews, but um, adopt, we are like adopted brothers and sisters of of um, into God's family, into God's family, and uh, and if we want to think about some applications of this, we could say you know Paul tells us that that men with children must prove themselves as managers in their own home before they can be pastors in the church, right? So that. That gives us a picture of what it, what life is like supposed to be like in the church. Just as a father is supposed to be a good manager of his home, this is what it should look like in the church. Okay, so I hope you see again that this picture of the family actually points to something greater. Now, obviously, the church is not the ultimate reality. Hope you recognize that God is the ultimate reality, but but the church is one of the great uh, things that God has put in place and that will exist eternally. Um, likewise, Paul tells all Christians to love fellow members as siblings. Uh, let's just look at a few of these. Romans 15, 13. I mean, Paul, you can recognize this just by the opening of a lot of Paul's letters. He calls them brothers, or we could say brothers and sisters in Christ. Um that this relationship that we have with one another inside the body of Christ that is expressed in this area is a family relationship. Romans 15:30. Um, someone read that for us. All right. So again, we could look at a number of these, but I think you get the idea. Um, the word for brothers here is is not just, okay, just those of you who are males are actually uh, brothers with one another, that you have a special bond with the other men in the church. No, this is actually a generic idea of brothers and sisters, siblings, we could say. Um, in 1 Thessalonians 4, um, let's turn there, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10. There's a responsibility that we have as Christians 
to love our brothers in Christ that actually Galatians 6 says, you know, do good to all people, especially those who are of the household of faith, that we have a special bond with one another because of the covenant that we have made with one another. Um, and this this is seen here in verses 9 and 10. Would someone read 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10? All right. Again, Paul has the same idea that we were talking about earlier that he's looking to see this church move to constant conformity. I see that you're doing this, that you're showing brotherly love to one another throughout all, all Macedonia, but here's what I'd like to see. I'd like you to see you do it even more. This is the way God looks at us, the way we should look at our children. You're doing this. This is great. I want to encourage you in that, but I'd like to see you do it even more. It'd be great. All right. But But the point that I want to draw out is that that we have a, a specific responsibility to love each other. Okay, this is loving the brethren. First John four, I think it is, uh, talks about how um, you know if you say you love God and you don't love your brother, then you don't love God. It's it's really a false profession because how can you love uh, God whom you have not seen when you don't love your brother whom you have seen? And the point is, the way that we express our love for God, right? That's the main commandment. That's the first and greatest commandment. The second is like into it, love your neighbor as yourself. We can't obey that first one without doing the second. Okay, The way in which we do love God is by showing love for the brethren, not just for people out here. You know, we should be showing love to all people, Galatians 6.10 says, but especially of those who are of the household of faith. We have a special bond within the church so that that means that the family actually pictures for us what it is like to have a proper relationship within the church peter writes in first peter 122 now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have a sincere love for your brothers love one another deeply from the heart here's wayne grudem again from his systematic theology, he says, that the designation brother is so common in the epistles that it seems to be the predominant way in which the New Testament authors refer to the other Christians to whom they are writing. This indicates the strong consciousness that they had of the nature of the church as the family of God. So this is something that um, that God has set up to to show the family that is has show, to show what it's like to have a proper relationship within the church. So we should think, you know, when there is disharmony within our church, when there is needs that are not being met, we should think, well, this is not the way that it happens in families, or at least it's not the way it should happen in families. Again, I want to remind you that this picture of the family is like a photo negative, right? That it, we can't see it perfectly because we are imperfect in our families, but it should give us an idea of what the image actually looks like, what it's supposed to look like, and that's what the family should do for the church. That while the family doesn't operate perfectly, you know, just think of any unbelieving family, um, it doesn't operate perfectly, but it still gives us an idea of what it should look like within the church because 
in general, even unbelieving fathers are loving to their children, right? And even unbelieving siblings stand up for their brothers, right? Blood is thicker than water, we say. Because there is a tight bond within the families, within our, within our society, or at least there should be. And while, you know, we can't just, well, what about this example where this family just, you know, they killed their parents or whatever, something like that. Well, obviously that's not a good picture of a family that we want to, to learn from, but, but we actually can learn from their negative example that, that everybody, even an unbeliever, senses the idea that that's not the way it should be. When that child killed his parent, that doesn't make, I mean, that's, that's not normal. That's actually against the laws of, of what God has set up because everyone does have the law in their heart. Romans 2.15. All right, so God ordained families to be an ongoing uh, symbol of what it looks like for us to love each other within the church. Uh, another proof of this could be found in um, if we look through all the, the one another passages, if you go through Paul's epistles, you're going to find a lot of passages that talk about, you know, uh, show, show compassion for one another. Um, there, there's just, there's just scores of, of passages that talk about a relationship that we must have with one another. And, and obviously what that tells us is we can't do this on our own. We can't do this out on an island, as I often say. We need to be within a, a local context where we can act out these responsibilities. All right. So the church is receives a picture of what it ought to look like, the, the relationships that exist within it. I mean, we could even go farther and say, you know, um, that the way that we treat older men in the church, right? We we don't rebuke them as our elders, but we actually entreat them as we would our fathers. Okay, so there's there's a relationship that we understand from our lives. We all had fathers and we know what that's like and so we we see what it looks like in the church now. Okay, this is how I ought to treat an older man in the church, not just, you know, tear him apart um in, in public or something like that, but rather and treat him as a father in a private setting really. All right, and um, so any questions here before we just got a few more things to say before we finish up? Picture of the Godhead, a picture of the gospel, and a picture of the church. All right, and I mentioned this uh, briefly earlier, but I hope you recognize that earthly families are not eternal, that once we get to heaven, they will cease, not that we won't know those people, we won't know about them or remember anything about them like, huh, you look very familiar type thing or, or they'll just be complete strangers and we now have to reintroduce ourselves to them. No, we'll still remember what has happened on the earth, I believe, but but actually those relationships will not be the same as they were because now we're part of something larger that's actually tangible. You know, the the, the full expression of the church, that is the universal church, all be in one place um, glorifying Christ as his bride and will be children in the Father's house. And so while the family as it is will cease once we get to heaven, the church will not. 
Okay, so that's why I say the church is a greater reality, not the ultimate reality, but it's a greater reality of um, than the family is. Jesus said in uh, John 14, In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come and take you to be with me, that also you may be where I am. Okay, so are you beginning to see the importance of the family, the the great treasure that the family is, and and what it helps us to to springboard ourselves to do, to display what the, the relationship is between God the Father and God the Son, even though we don't do it perfectly, and to display what it's like to be a part of God's family, that's the gospel although we don't do it perfectly, and to display what it's like to have relationships within the church, although we don't do it perfectly. So we shouldn't diminish our view of families or just think that they're uh, an obstacle or a tool or, as I mentioned last week, an idol, um, but rather that they are really a means to an end to help display something greater than what they are. It's better to actually, um, it, it's better to be a part of the greater reality than it is to be a part of the lesser reality. Okay, just like with that example I gave at the beginning, it's better to actually know the person and have a relationship with the person than to know the picture. The family is the picture. It's better to be a part of the church than it is to be a part of the family. Now, that doesn't mean you throw off all of your relationships with your families. You understand what I'm saying, but but ultimately. Uh, it's better to be a part of the church. It's better to be displaying the gospel. And so now the the family actually takes on a greater purpose. It's not just there just to you know satisfy some of the needs that I have, satisfy some of the desires. You know, I I wasn't able to do some of these things as a child, so now I want my children to be able to do these. It's not the purpose of the family. It's actually to be a picture to point to something greater. All right, next week we'll consider how these great truths have implications for our church and for our evangelism. Um, the family is a very important unit, but it's not, a, it's not the ultimate reality. Any questions or comments? <laughs> no, I don't. Yes. Yeah, I don't believe as parents we can break our child's will um, because the will is part of the mind. Um, We can lead them in that direction. We can influence them to submit their wills to ours or to God's, obviously. But ultimately, that's the work of the Spirit. That's my. So, in other words, you know, if you were to read up on um, on psychology today they would say that that's something that that needs to be done perhaps even an unbelieving child but i you know i think the way that we ought to look at it is here's here's what kind of hold god has on you because he is the creator 
and especially if you're a believer, because um, because he's he doubly owns you, right? He's bought you with the blood of Christ as well as having owned you since he made you. Um, we that you need to be in conformity to God. This, you know, when you defy me, you're not defying me. You're defying God. Well, I think we'll get into that a lot more when we get into the practical applications. But whenever I discipline my children, I always point them to God. That this is not just because you know this really bothers me. In fact, if I can't have a good biblical reasons for why I'm disciplining them, then I shouldn't be disciplining them. You know, maybe I didn't lay the boundaries properly. Um, but when it's clear that they have, when it's obvious that they have defied me or defied God, um, they need to recognize this is a sin against God and this is serious and needs to be dealt with in that way. So in time, um, you know, hopefully God will break their will, so to speak, so that they're constantly in conformity. But I, I mean, I, I feel like even as a Christian now that there are times when my will needs to be broken because I'm constantly wanting to defy God. And so it's not like, you know, the way I've always pictured it when people say that, you know, we need to break their will is like, okay, once we do it, now they're they're good in the rest of their life. We don't have to, but it's really a constant conformity. It's constantly changing them um, because the heart is deceitfully wicked and, and who can know it? we got to keep conforming our hearts to what God desires. So it's not an easy thing as a parent. I I can attest to that. All right, good question. Anything else? All right, well, plenty of time to fellowship after we pray. Thank you for coming and thank you for your attention. Let's pray. Lord, we are uh, grateful for um, the purpose of the family. We recognize that it is a great institution that you have set up, but but that it points to uh, even greater things that we are able to be a part of the gospel and the church and uh, even we're able to see within the Godhead uh, what great relationship you have with your son. And we're amazed at, at how you use these things. Sometimes we make our family the idol and make it the most important thing in all of life and we pray that you'd help us not to turn away from our family or to despise them, but to to understand that they play a role in in help pointing us and others to something very much greater. Thank you for allowing us to be called your children and to be brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ and co-heirs with Him on the same plane as Him, receiving the same sorts of blessings and inheritances that He will receive. And so we praise you for that the special relationship that we have with Him through the church. May You help us to show love for one another within this body. May we not just talk about it, but actually do it. And uh, may the result be that more and more people would, would praise You. People here now, believers, members, but also unbelievers as they watch, may they see our good works and glorify You in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.